This is the Historian's Podcast, Highlights Edition, for programs aired in January and February in 2021, including Public Radio's Early Days with broadcaster Will Lewis, historian David Petruja's memoir, Too Long Ago, on growing up in Amsterdam, New York, Justice Robert Best's history of the Fulton County Courthouse, professional engineer Darren Tracy on historic preservation, Jerry Snyder of Historic Amsterdam League on graveyards and fire department history, Oneida County historian Joseph Bottini on Trinkus Manor, a destination restaurant in Oriskany, and New York City correspondent Jim Kaplan, recalling the careers of financier Bruce Wasserstein and his sister, playwright Wendy Wasserstein. I'm Bob Cudmore. On Friday, January 1st, episode 351 of the Historian's Podcast featured an interview with pioneer public radio broadcaster Will Lewis, who recalled his early days at Boston University's WBUR-FM. There was a newspaper strike in Boston in, I believe, 1967, and Will Lewis arranged with the Boston Globe to read local news stories in a five-hour nightly program called Newspaper of the Air. The Boston Globe was, the reporters weren't laid off, but they, they had them uh, write copy as if they were going to uh, publish. And, I, and uh, they would send that copy over to the radio station. And then you read it on the air? Is that the deal? Right, and attribute it. Where I come in, if you remember, was when the strike was settled, I believe it was in the summer, you hired me to host and produce an hour-long newspaper, The Air, weeknights, with contributions from others. Yes, you, so that the, the newspaper, The Air, was a precursor uh, of your program. This could be very hurtful to me. But do you actually remember hiring me, or I mean, do you remember me at all from this time? I remember you. Yeah, I, I, I vaguely, I remember the name. Now, my recollection is this, and this may be completely off base. My wife, I was married at the time. I'd been going to Boston U, studying English, actually, and my wife had become a typing teacher, Mary Cudmore. You said to me something to the effect, well. I don't really have anything in the budget to pay a reporter. I could justify paying a typist. So I recall you paid her instead of me. <laughs> it, it, it's very possible. Will Lewis and other educational broadcasters also lobbied for passage of the public broadcasting bill in Washington in 1967. Lewis was present when Lyndon Johnson signed the bill into law. Will left WBUR in Boston in the early 1970s for management positions in public radio in California. He went to jail for just over two weeks in a controversy over release of tapes his station had received from the Symbionese Liberation Army in connection with the Patty Hearst kidnapping in California. Will Lewis is a paraplegic today and his wife suffers from dementia, and he has started a GoFundMe drive. Are you bitter? No. Why should I be bitter? I'm 89 years old. <laughs> I'm still alive. I'm in actually fairly good health. 
and then, then the paralysis. How would you describe your life today? That's a good question. I was spending most of my time trying to figure out how to stay above water, who I could pay and who I couldn't pay or shouldn't pay or don't pay this month or never pay that month. It was a constant juggling act. The GoFundMe has released that, some of that tension. Will Lewis is President Emeritus of the Los Angeles Press Club. Hello. 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 Is this David? Yes. Oh, Bob. Yeah, Hold Bob. On. Remember him? I remember Bob. Yeah. Hold on. Okay. Let's see. Let's commence to begin, as Casey Stengel used to say. <laughs> this is David Petrusha, author of Too Long Ago, A Childhood Memory, A Vanished World. It's a story about growing up in the Rust Belt in Amsterdam, New York in the 50s and 60s. And it triggered a lot of memories for me, and hopefully for a lot of other people. This is the Historian's Podcast, and I'm Bob Cutmore. We welcome back historian David Petrusha. Petrusha has written many books on American presidents. Perhaps the best known is 1920, The Year of the Six Presidents. Petrusha's newest book, though, is a memoir of his mid-20th century upbringing in our mutual hometown, Amsterdam, New York, in the Mohawk Valley, the former Carpet City. The book is called Too Long Ago, A Childhood Memory, A Vanished World, A Family, A City, A Rust Belt Tale. There's a lot in that title, David. Can you talk more about it? Why did you cram all that stuff in there? (laughs) Well, you got to give people a clue as to what it's about. And uh, we sort of wax poetic in the front part of that too long ago, childhood memory, a vanished world, because it is a vanished world. Mm-hmm. It's it, it just doesn't exist anymore, whether it's in Amsterdam, New York, or, or the rest of the universe. Uh, the world has changed so much, attitudes, styles, behaviors, technologies, and it's it's my memoir, but I, I think I take like third or fourth place in it when I say a family, a city, a Rust Belt tale. So I talk about my family and, you know, because that's that's what shapes you. Uh, the city, the city certainly shaped both of us. And in terms of what happened in the middle of, of our growing up, which was the demise of the carpet industry, and the city going from a fairly prosperous place uh, to something which um, slid downward steadily. And, and all of those things go into the book, and, and that's, that's why you've got all those words on the, on the, on the uh, cover. I understand. And uh, you and I do come from the same section of uh, Amsterdam, Reed Hill. Uh, you uh, grew up on Church Street and J Street, and I grew up on Pulaski Street. And when we were young, it was primarily a Polish settlement, but not completely, because my family was there, for example. My father is a native of England. Tell us about how your family ended up settling on Reed Hill, Amsterdam, New York. Well, like an awful lot of the people in Amsterdam, and this this goes this this back up to the, the, the immigrant experience. 
where one person picks up stakes and goes to another part of the country or the world, and then before you know it, his sisters and his brothers and his cousins, whom he numbers by the dozens, as Gilbert and Sullivan used to say, follow him there. And so you get these villages in Europe, which might have been depopulated by um, immigration to some part of, of the New World. And that was the case in Amsterdam. There were a couple of villages from Galicia, the southern part of Poland, the Austrian part of Poland, where people pulled up stakes. They were called Lepinki and Krig. And so many people uh, came to Amsterdam from there. David Petruja is author of a memoir, Too Long Ago. Episode 352 of Historian's Podcast debuted January 8th. Friday, January 15th, Historian's Podcast debuted episode 353 with retired State Supreme Court Justice Robert Best chronicling the history of Johnstown's Fulton County Courthouse, the oldest courthouse still in use in New York State. When this courthouse was built, America was still a colony of Great Britain? Sir William Johnson created Johnstown and was the the agent for the king, the Indian agent for the king. So all of the business relating to the Indians and the state was handled by Sir William Johnson. So he built his home in Johnstown, and it became the only village around, I guess. He suggested to the then-governor, Tryon, that there should be a county created west of Albany uh, for the doing of the legal business. Governor Tryon liked the idea, and a county was created. Tryon County was created. Sir William Johnson built the courthouse, 1772. So it was the only courthouse west of Albany in the then colony of New York. And they had their first court session in 1772. Who who was the judge? I don't know that they elected a judge, but they had the the judges are all named in this article I I quoted. They were uh, relatives and friends, I think, of Sir William Johnson, although he wasn't one of them. Presiding at judges were Guy Johnson, John Butler, who was with General Braddock at Fort Duquesne, the notorious Butler of Butler's Rangers, and Peter Conine, who served with uh, the Tryon County Militia during the Revolution. Those, no. th- those were the judges. <laughs> How they were elected, I don't know. <laughs> or, or, or they were chosen, perhaps. They it, were it chosen, some... probably Sir William Johnson, because he ran everything, I suppose. It took some time to pay for the new courthouse over the over the years, right? The article says that Sir William Johnson uh, produced 500 pounds to build the courthouse, and it was built during the summer of 1772. He not only paid the 500 pounds, but he also 
supplied 25 gallons of rum to refresh the brick basins, the millwrights, and the other sundry help that built the courthouse during the hot months. A fringe benefit for them. A fringe benefit, yes, exactly. So this is 1772, but Sir William Johnson's not long for this world. He died before the Revolutionary War, and his son, John Johnson, kind of took over his affairs, but then John Johnson decamped from Johnstown because he was still loyal to the British, and he went up to Canada and then would come back and and yeah. battle his former neighbors. They took off for Canada, all of the those that were supporters of Sir William Johnson. He died, he had died already before the revolution and had a gunshot in his, his leg or something that, uh, that probably had something to do with his death. That's Judge Robert Best. The judge's daughter, Meredith Best, an art teacher, created the artwork for the new book about the history of the Fulton County Courthouse. On Friday, January 22nd, episode 354 of Historian's Podcast featured professional engineer Darren Tracy, a frequent home repair guest on WAMC Public Radio. But Darren Tracy discussed historic preservation with us and a project he and his wife Lisa undertook in restoration of a tiny house on Culvert Street in Glens Falls, New York. In the 1800s, the building was a doctor's office? His last name was Ferguson, Dr. Ferguson. He was a prominent physician in Glens Falls in the late 1800s. And this was his doctor's office. He was also an investor in uh, an old hotel, I believe on Prospect Mountain, outside of the village of Lake George as well. So we came to know about this building through a historic preservation organization called ARCH, and that's an acronym for Adirondack Architectural Historic Preservation. And they sent out an email stating that this building was slated for demolition, and uh, I picked up on that email and investigated uh, the building and saw that it was in very bad disrepair but noted that it was on the National Register of Historic Places. It was listed, and uh, that told me it's a significant building. So uh, that was the beginning of my interest. Mm. And I believe it's James Ferguson was the was the doctor. Well, the one thing that stands out, um, I haven't been there, but I, I've seen some newspaper and TV photos of the building, that his office is a small building. Why was it so small? That's correct. It's very small in scale. It's uh, 400 square feet per floor. It's a two-story building. And I I assume that's all he needed in terms of size for his doctor's office. I understand his home was built adjacent to this doctor's office, but Mm -hmm. it burned down. And I understand that this doctor's office was similar in architecture. It's a uh, second empire and uh, that means it's got a mansard roof, which is a, a roof that is sloped on a higher level. And uh, that, I think it was coined by uh, a guy by the name of Mansard in France. 
in the late 1800s as some way to avoid paying taxes on living space. Um, really? We came up with this this mansard roof that allowed enough room in the attic to utilize the space, but yet he avoided taxes. So um, this roof style was named after him, mansard. Ah. Now, today, I mean, I guess it's a tangent maybe. I mean, people build little houses, right, to live in, right? Little, little That's sort of become a, a thing, right? Yeah, it has. It's you know, part of the sustainability movement. Uh, the, the greenest house is is one that takes the least amount of resources to to build and to heat and cool. Mm-hmm. So yeah, so this is I call this actually uh, our 1870s tiny house. That's professional engineer. Darren Tracy. This is Jerry Snyder, and I'm with the Historic Amsterdam League. We're going to do a little discussion talking about our Amsterdam Icons 2021 calendar, which the theme is the Amsterdam Fire Department in the early years with the volunteer companies and the early years of the department. Also, we're going to talk about our Ghosts of the Past tours, which take place at Green Hill Cemetery. This is the Historian's Podcast. We welcome Jerry Snyder, one of the founders of Historic Amsterdam League, which celebrates and preserves history in Amsterdam, New York. He is the author of Ghosts of the Past, 2012 to 2019, which describes the League's very popular cemetery tours, and also he's put together the Amsterdam Icons Calendar uh, for 2021, which chronicles Amsterdam's fire department. The publications are available uh, from the Historic Amsterdam League. You can find more information online. Let me uh, start with the uh, fire department, uh, uh, Jerry. Uh, you have kind of a real powerful quote there in the in the calendar saying, fire has always been an ever-present threat and danger. And and people are, are just very interested in the history of, I would say, probably any fire department. One of the reasons uh, we thought that it would be a good uh, good area to cover on the calendar this year, uh, it's always hard to come up with a subject that uh, kind of catches everybody's interest for the calendar. And uh, the fire department is something that, when you think about it, is, has been here since the early days of the, uh, the village and uh, the early days of the city. Got a lot of history that goes with it. Uh, fires have always been, as it says, uh, you know, part of the history of the city. And it seems like... Uh, a very interesting area to get into and take a look at, and there's certainly a lot that goes with it. So uh, it seemed to be a natural that something we could uh, take a look at this year, and uh, I think there's a lot of good information there and a lot uh, a lot that people probably didn't realize and know about in the early days, and that's what we tried to concentrate on, the early days of the uh, volunteer companies and the early days of the department. Jerry Snyder also told us about the years that his organization did ghost tours at Green Hill Cemetery. Every year after we've uh, done these tours, one of the things that people have asked for is, gee, do you have a do you have any kind of a book that gives us a rundown on the, you know, on the uh, residents we we call them that we that we met this year, or gives us a little bit more information about them? And every every year I get peppered with that question. So this seemed like the ideal year since we couldn't do the tour itself in the cemetery. Uh, this seemed like the ideal year to go back and say, okay, we'll gather up everybody from all the years that we've done and we'll kind of do a synopsis of the tours themselves, but we'll go a little deeper and 
We'll give a biography of all 62 of the residents that we've uh, come come to visit over the course of the years, and a little bit of the story of the background of how we developed the ghost tours, and uh, everybody that been involved and just give a little bit about it and a few stories about the cemetery itself and the history of it and some of the little interesting things. Follow the same type of pattern that we usually do with our tour books that we do in the summer, which if we couldn't do our tours again this year, then those either. That's Jerry Snyder of Historic Amsterdam League. In early February, we touched base with Oneida County historian Joseph Botini to remember Trinkus Manor a destination restaurant with an elaborate Christmas display in Oriskany, New York. I'm Joseph P. Botini, the Oneida County historian uh, here in central New York. I have been the historian since 2014. I am very fortunate that I'm located in the county that is often referred to as America's County, owing to its many nationally significant connections to America's history. But from the great past of the 18th century to America's space exploration of the 20th century to the military installation of the 21st century, Oneida County, Oneida County is home to much of America's history. And uh, I'm very proud to have that opportunity to serve the county in this, fun- in this capacity. Although it's frustrating at times, believe me. <laughs> this is the Historian's Podcast. I'm Bob Cudmore. And our guest is Joseph Botini, Oneida County historian since 2014. Joseph Botini is a retired American history school teacher with 34 years of professional service. A native of Rome, New York, and a U.S. Army veteran, Botini is a graduate of Rome Free Academy and Utica College and completed graduate studies at SUNY Polytechnic Institute. He's co-authored multiple books, including Utica, Then and Now, Legendary Locals, and Oneida County, an illustrated history. He lives in Sequoit, New York, south of Utica, and has served on the school board there. There are a lot of things that we could talk about in Oneida County, but I must confess what sort of prompted my interest in talking with Joe Bottini was to learn more about the Trinkus family. Who, who were they, the Trinkus family? Frank Trinkus Sr. came from Austria. Well, then it was Austria-Hungary. Came and started as a coal miner in Virginia. Mm-hmm. He went from there to Ohio. Didn't like the coal mining business. I can't seem to blame him there. Found that to be a little bit uh, uh, less to his liking as far as earning a living. And bought a farm in Fly Creek, New York, which is approximately, oh, half-hour drive from, from Utica near Richfield Springs, at that time quite a popular resort area. Farming, I guess, didn't uh, fit his ideal lifestyle either because shortly thereafter he purchased a home and uh, and uh, purchased a hotel, I should say, in Oriskany, New York. Uh, Frank Trinkus, the senior, uh, mm-hmm. married a Gertrude. His wife's name was Gertrude. And they had seven children, uh, six boys and uh, one girl, six sons and one daughter, I should say. Uh, and uh, he bought the hotel and ran that for about 10 years. And his five sons or six sons were all in the military during World War II. 
mm-hmm. when they returned and uh, they went into business with his with uh, their father Frank and opened a restaurant uh, in Ariscany. It uh, it was um, the building was an old mansion originally built in 1823, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, it, the la- the last occupant was uh, uh, the Woodbury family. Woodbury owned a factory, a felt factory in Oriskany, and it was called the Woodbury Mansion when they bought it. And uh, they uh, purchased that place in 1946. They opened a restaurant in 1947. The original restaurant seated 75 people, so it wasn't that large. But he had in mind to uh, have a dining experience uh, akin to the Trillian countryside dining and lodging of the uh, area where he was from in Europe. Uh, Trolli, uh, Trolli is an area between uh, Austria and Italy and the Alps. Mm-hmm. And uh, that was his dream, and uh, they, they did a good job doing that. That's Oneida County historian Joseph Botini. I'm Jim Kaplan. I'm a lawyer, writer, walking tour historian. I'm the uh, one of the founders of the Lower Manhattan Historical Association, and I've done a number of articles for the New York History Almanac as well as for this podcast on various subjects relating to New York City history. In this one, I thought we would go to more recent history. The financier and the playwright, the story of brother and sister, Bruce and Wendy Wasserstein. This is the Historian's Podcast, and I'm Bob Cudmore. Jim Kaplan joins us with a story from the recent history of New York City. Jim lives in New Rochelle, New York. He's an attorney, founder of the Lower Manhattan Historical Association. His article on Bruce and Wendy Wasserstein recently appeared in New York Almanac and was first published by the Museum of American Finance. You write that Bruce Wasserstein, a financier and corporate takeover advisor, and his sister, Wendy Wasserstein, a Pulitzer Prize-winning playwright and author, were among the most accomplished and famous New Yorkers of the late 20th and early 21st centuries. And you say they were part of the revival of New York City? Can you tell us more? Yeah, I think, uh, and now I'm talking about the period that I lived with, and I actually knew the Wasserstein's growing up. Uh, They were, uh, uh, New York was in a terrible state in the mid-1970s with the New York City fiscal crisis. And many people, including Felix Rowiton, who was supposedly one of the major gurus, uh, felt that the city would never recover. I don't want to say ironically, it did recover because of uh, a number of people, some of whom were recently profiled uh, in, in an NBC uh, television show, who were basically were people who had gone to jail, like uh, uh, Ivan Bosky and... Uh, Leonie Helmsley, but there were a number of people who really, I think, were quite important and probably are not recognized now, uh, who were important in its revival. One was Ed Koch, by the way. The Wasserstein's uh, are probably not as well known today, I think, because they uh, died fairly young. They died, uh, Wendy died uh, in 2006 at the age of 55, and Bruce died at the age of 61. But they were really leaders in two important disparate fields that were uh, revived uh, 
after the fiscal crisis, starting in the 1980s and into uh, the 1990s and 2000 uh, until their death. That's our New York City area correspondent, Jim Kaplan. Hope you've enjoyed this Historian's Podcast Highlights Edition. We'll do another one as we uh, continue on in 2021. We need your contributions to keep going on the Internet. You can find our GoFundMe link on our homepage, or you can send a check made out to me, Bob Cudmore, to 125 Horseman Drive, Scotia, New York, 12302. You've been listening to The Historian's Podcast. I'm Bob Cudmore.